Yeah, I heard. We got a consult for vasculitis. I'm busy in clinic at the moment. Get a punch for H&E, DIF, get imaging, CBC, CMP, coagulation profile, ESR, CRP, urinalysis, ANA, antistreptilation, otitis, rheumatoid factor and hepatitis serologies. I want a complete review of systems, and if you mess this up, the patient may succumb to your incompetence. Call me back in 15 minutes with an update, and don't tell me it's senile purpura. Welcome to the Grin Zone. Dissecting Dermatology Differently. Here's your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, welcome back. Today we'll be discussing another challenging topic in our vascular reaction pattern, vasculitis. Vasculitis may first present with skin changes, and it can be deadly, so we as dermatologists have to know vasculitis extremely well so we're ready when these patients come to the office or hospitals we're working at. You can run, but you can't hide. I've got your number, doctor! When you hear vasculitis, I'm sure many of you are thinking, "Mm, how about not? But stick with me on this, because I really think today's episode is one of the most fun and informative ones yet. I really wish I would have had the upcoming episodes when I was a student, because this is very complicated stuff, and it's hard to know where to start. So for the next four episodes, my goal is to simplify both vasculitis and the vasculopathies for you as much as I can while still giving you a thorough approach to evaluating these patients. Since the purpuric rashes of vasculitis and vasculopathy have a massive differential, we will break them into four episodes. Today's episode will be the first of two episodes on the various forms of vasculitis, which again refers to disorders with inflammation in the blood vessel wall. Then we'll discuss the vasculopathies, which refers to vascular damage without meeting criteria for vasculitis. And lastly, finish with a bonus episode on how to bring it all together at the patient's bedside. This can be some pretty dense stuff. Nobody can learn it after one listen. However, after listening and re-listening, I can promise you that you'll know more about vasculitis than you did before you started. I'm also very excited because we're going to spice up this dense info with the hottest new game show to hit the podcasting airwaves. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Name That Vasculitis. I'm Jerry Titus Vasculitis. If you're like me when I was a student and had no idea where to start with vasculitis, you've come to the right place. I used to be a dermatologist in a past life. Now I'm a game show host. That's what you get for medical fraud. But anyways, stick around and listen to Dr. Kolb's background information, because you're going to need it, and I'll be back in 10 minutes to explain all the fun. Before we play Name That Vasculitis, oh boy, we will first go over some basic definitions of purpura, a basic categorization of how to approach this purpura differential, and then start our crash course on the many types of vasculitis, which we'll finish in part two. But first, let's quick review our reaction patterns and mention our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. All right, the five reaction patterns are papulosquamous, examitous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobullous. We are currently going through the eight subgroups of the vascular disorders, which include 1. erythema multiforme, 2. the toxic erythema group, which has three subcategories with drug eruptions, viral exanthems, and toxin-mediated eruptions such as staph scalded skin syndrome. The third subgroup of the vascular reaction pattern includes the figurate erythemas. Fourth, we have urticaria. 
five vasculitis, six vasculopathy, seven retiform purpura, and eight vascular growths, including neoplasms and vascular malformations. Okay, before we get into vasculitis, I want to spend a couple minutes going over some basic definitions of vasculitis and vasculopathies. Okay, Poindexter, I bet you missed me. I figured I'd help you out before you start dancing around with that Jerry Titus devil. You know, he used to be roommates with Bob Barker, Alex Trebek, and Pat Sajak, all under one roof. But old Jerry was a little too corny to make the game show scene, so he ended up in the same medical school class as me. Anyways, getting back to the learning of dermatology, what is the difference between vasculitis and vasculopathy? Vasculitis is caused by inflammation of the blood vessel wall, which classically leads to palpable purpura on dependent areas, such as the lower legs. Since there's inflammation of the vessels that brings edema with it, these purpura are often palpable. An example of vasculitis would be Henoch-Schönlein purpura. This differs from vasculopathies, which refer to blood vessel damage with minimal or no inflammation of the vessel walls, which typically causes macular or non-palpable purpura. Examples of vasculopathies include problems with coagulation or platelet issues like ITP. We'll talk more about these vasculopathies in a couple episodes. So again, for vasculitis, think inflammation of the vessel wall leading to edema and palpable purpura. For vasculopathy, think little or no inflammation and non-palpable purpura. Okay, let's move beyond dermatology for kindergartners. Tell me at least three types of purpura. Purpura means there is visible hemorrhage into the skin or mucosa. We break purpura into six types, including petechia, macular purpura, macular ecchymosis, palpable purpura, non-inflammatory retiform purpura, and inflammatory retiform purpura. Petechia are non-blanchable, pinpoint red macules less than or equal to 4 millimeters. For petechia without vasculitis, think platelet disorders like ITP. Then we have macular purpura, which are non-palpable in 5 to 9 millimeters in size, along with ecchymosis, aka a bruise, which is 1 centimeter or larger. For pathologic ecchymoses, think problems with coagulation, as opposed to p-p-petechia being associated with p-p-platelets. The fourth type of purpura is palpable purpura, which can range in size from a few millimeters to many centimeters. Palpable purpura suggests vasculitis and inflammation because inflammation brings edema with it that swells the skin. Then the last two types of purpura are non-inflammatory or inflammatory retiform purpura, which refers to purpura with an angulated or branching pattern. Retiform purpura is a bad sign. It means you're dealing with a more serious underlying etiology. So again, purpura means visible bleeding into the skin or mucosa, and it can take on various forms including petechia, macular purpura, macular ecchymosis, palpable purpura, and non-inflammatory or inflammatory retiform purpura. How can you talk so much about something without mentioning the pathogenesis? What happens to the blood vessels to lead to the appearance of purpura? 
When it comes to learning an approach to these purpuric and vascular disorders, it's tough to know where to begin. There are a lot of papers written with several different algorithms and approaches. I personally find it helpful to think of the anatomy of the blood vessels when you're making your differential diagnosis. So we'll break the causes of purpura into three big categories based on location of blood vessel pathology. So we have number one, problems with the vessel walls themselves, such as inflammation and vasculitis, or other alterations due to diabetes, amyloid deposition, or calcium deposition, as in calciphylaxis. Location number two is intravascular pathology inside the blood vessel, such as coagulation or platelet abnormalities, along with embolic conditions. Then three, problems outside the blood vessel wall, such as connective tissue issues like scurvy or actinic purpura. In both scurvy and actinic purpura, you have problems with collagen in the dermis cushioning the vessels. Therefore, minimal trauma leads to easy bruising. So again, when it comes to the causes of purpura, think of the anatomy of the blood vessel and break it into three locations. One, problems with the vessel walls themselves, such as vasculitis, vasospasm, or alterations due to diabetes or amyloid. Two, intravascular pathology, such as coagulation or platelet abnormalities, along with embolic conditions. Then three, extravascular problems such as scurvy, actinic purpura, or trauma. All right, the party's just getting started, so let's let that info fester in your brain for 10 seconds before we start talking vasculitis. Okay, let's talk vasculitis, which again refers to inflammation of the blood vessel walls, which often leads to systemic manifestations and palpable purpura in the skin. Think about it. Blood vessels feed every tissue in our body. For hypertension patients, poor blood pressure control leads to end organ damage in the brain, eyes, heart, kidney, etc. For vasculitis, it is inflammation of all these blood vessels and, and organs that also has systemic manifestations, but it's a different process. Vasculitis is typically a type 3 hypersensitivity, whereby antibodies are made to an antigen and form immune complexes, which then deposit in vessel walls, activate a complement cascade, and lead to inflammation of the blood vessel walls. You can rattle off all you want, but if you don't organize it, you're worthless. How exactly do we categorize vasculitis? We are still figuring out how to exactly categorize vasculitis, but they are most commonly broken down based on vessel size involved into four groups, which include 1. Small vessel only, which refers to the little arterioles, capillaries, and postcapillary venules in the upper and mid dermis. Then 2. Small plus medium vessel vasculitis, for which the medium vessels are larger, but they're still small arteries and veins in the deep dermis or sub-Q. 3. Medium vessel only, and 4. Large vessel vasculitides, which affect larger named vessels like the aorta. So, let's run through which conditions belong to which groups. Name three conditions that can cause small vessel vasculitis. The small vessel vasculitides cause inflammation of the tiny arterioles, capillaries, and or postcapillary venules in the upper and mid dermis, damage them, and lead to baby hemorrhages that we see clinically as palpable purpura in petechia. 
These small vessel vasculitides that we'll discuss include the prototype cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, commonly referred to as leukocytoclastic vasculitis, or LCV. Then we have henoch-shanlin purpura, aka HSP, and urticarial vasculitis. So just some clarification on terminology here. When it comes to cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, which is again commonly referred to as LCV, remember that LCV is actually a histology finding and can also be seen in other systemic vasculitic disorders, such as Wegener's granulomatosis. The term cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, or CSVV, describes cases where LCV is mostly confined to the skin. So again, the small vessel vasculitides that we'll discuss include the prototype cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, commonly referred to as leukocytoclastic vasculitis, or LCV, henoch-shanlin purpura, aka HSP, and urticarial vasculitis. For completeness sake, some of the other small vessel vasculitides that we won't be discussing today include acute hemorrhagic edema of infancy, erythema elevatum diutinum, aka EED, and granuloma faciali. I know this is dense stuff, but it will all be listed out in the study guide online, and working on this differential is crucial to knowing your stuff with vasculitis. If you think this is dense, choose another specialty. Tell me about the small and medium vessel vasculitides, and you can stop complaining about the material after doing a mediocre job of explaining it. When the medium-sized vessels of the body get involved, the skin starts showing new changes besides petechia, purpura, and urticarial papules as seen with small vessel vasculitis. Some of these skin changes caused by medium vessel involvement include levito reticularis, ulcers, subcutaneous nodules, and even retiform purpura. When we get involvement of the medium-sized vessels or larger, that's when we start to see more visceral involvement, since these medium-sized vessels perfuse the kidneys, the liver, the heart, mesentery, and of course, the skin. So anyways, when it comes to the vasculitides affecting both small and medium-sized vessels, I want you to think of two groups. Group 1 being mixed cryoglobulinemia types 2 and 3, and then group 2 being the big 3 ANCA-associated vasculitides. Again, for the vasculitides affecting both small and medium-sized vessels, think of the two groups of disorders that also have multiple subtypes, mixed cryoglobulinemia types 2 and 3, and the ANCA-associated vasculitides. Not only does your generation need puppies and nap time to get through the workday, but now you have to go around renaming every entity in medicine to help you remember it better when you could have just used that time to learn it in the first place. If you know your history, these next three did deserve renaming, but I won't go into that. Now, give me both the old and the new names for the three anchor vasculitides. The three forms of ANCA-associated vasculitis include granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka GPA, formerly known as Wegener's granulomatosis, two, microscopic polyangiitis, and three, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka EGPA, which is formerly called Schurg-Strauss syndrome. Again, the three forms of ANCA-associated vasculitis include granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka GPA or Wegener's, two, microscopic polyangiitis, and three, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka EGPA or Schurg-Strauss syndrome. 
Now I hope you can name some medium and large vessel vasculitides. Our traditional medium-sized vessel vasculitides include polyarteritis nodosa, aka PAN, and Kawasaki disease. And lastly, there are the large vessel vasculitides, including temporal arteritis, aka giant cell arteritis, and Takayasu's arteritis. So, to be a great dermatologist, it's all about having a wide differential. So I'm going to repeat these differentials several times to help you really get them down. So again, the small vessel vasculitides include cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, Henoch-Schönlein purpura, aka HSP, and urticarial vasculitis. Then the small and medium vessel vasculitides include mixed cryoglobulinemia types 2 and 3, and the three ANCA-associated vasculitides, which include granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka GPA, 2, microscopic polyangiitis, and 3, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka EGPA. Our traditional medium vessel vasculitides include polyarteritis nodosa, aka PAN, and Kawasaki disease. And lastly, there are the large vessel vasculitides, including temporal arteritis and Takayasu's arteritis. Well, after all of that, I'm going to need to go out for a cigarette break, and I don't even smoke. Doc, I got plenty of cigarettes, and there's even more down at Snoopy's. If you want to take a really long break, we'll go down, get a beer, and have a cigarette. Alright, so for the rest of today's episode, we'll be honing in on the small vessel vasculitides, which will finish in part 2 vasculitis along with the medium and large vessel vasculitides. To spice things up, we'll make it into our own little game show. So here's your new host, Jerry Titus Vasculitis. Hello everybody. Welcome back to Name That Vasculitis. I'm Jerry Titus Vasculitis. Let's get ready for round one on the small vessel vasculitides. I give you the buzzwords, you tell me who it is, and tell me more about it. Alright, let's play. For ten points, here's your first vasculitis. Plain Jane, the most common vasculitis. Purpura on the legs, often caused by drugs or bugs. This would be cutaneous small vessel vasculitis. Like I mentioned, cutaneous small vessel vasculitis is basically leukocytoclastic vasculitis that is mostly confined to the skin. It is caused by a long list of triggers such as infections that we'll discuss in a bit. What happens is that an antigen like a virus is bound by antibodies and forms big immune complexes that deposit into post-capillary venules in the skin. These lodged immune complexes then activate complement, which activates the immune system and causes inflammation that damages these vessels and allows red blood cells to leak out. And what we see are petechia and palpable purpura in dependent areas. Here's that pathogenesis quickly one last time. Antigen trigger is bound by antibodies and forms immune complexes. They lodge in vessels, activate complement, which activates inflammation that causes blood vessel wall damage and leads to red blood cell extravasation and petechia and purpura seen clinically. As far as LCV lesions go, keep in mind that they may be itchy or painful, and they may be bullous or even pustular as well. Okie dokie. So you have a patient in front of you who has what looks like classic LCV. For a bonus 10 points, what are some triggers that you should be asking about?
For cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, I want you to remember the acronym MANIC to remember the triggers. We have M for medications, A for autoimmune connective tissue diseases like lupus, RA, or Sjogren's syndrome, N for NSAIDs since we need to buy an N, I for a variety of infections or inflammatory bowel disease, and C is for cancer. Again, for the possible triggers of cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, I want you to remember the acronym MANIC to remember M for medications, A for for autoimmune connective tissue diseases like lupus, RA, or Sjogren's syndrome, N for NSAIDs, I for a variety of infections or inflammatory bowel disease, and C for cancer. It's important to remember that medications and infections are typically introduced one to two weeks prior to the vasculitic rash, whereas underlying conditions like autoimmune diseases or cancers typically start six months prior to the lesions. This manic mnemonic is also a nice one to remember because these are also the triggers for other small vessel vasculitides like urticarial vasculitis and erythema elevatum diutinum, along with sweets syndrome. We'll discuss sweets in the dermal reaction pattern in the next season. Well done, oh knowledgeable one. You managed another 50 points. My corny one-liners are just getting started, folks. But I must say, I think your long lists and mnemonics are making the audience want to vomit. So if you can keep them down, I think I can smell it from here, okay? Hey, Jerry, you suck! So let's quick talk a little more about these triggers for cutaneous small vessel vasculitis. The long list of medications associated with CSVV include beta-lactam antibiotics, Bactrim, NSAIDs, thiazides, and oral contraceptives. Infections leading to CSVV include a variety of bacterial, viral, and fungal infections, including group A strep, hepatitis and HIV, and candida infections, respectively. Then the C in the manic mnemonic for CSVV triggers stands for cancers, which thankfully occur in less than 5% of cases and include a variety of leukemias and solid organ cancers. So again, for cutaneous small vessel vasculitis triggers, remember MANIC, standing for medications, autoimmune diseases, NSAIDs, infections or IBD, and rarely cancer. You know that mnemonic is growing on me. I don't know why, but it reminds me of myself a bit. But here we are, next question, for five measly points. How will one of these cutaneous small vessel vasculitis patients present clinically? Patients with cutaneous small vessel vasculitis usually present one to three weeks after one of those triggers with palpable purpura and petechia on dependent areas like the lower legs. A nice pearl is that lesions can be more severe under areas of pressure like the sock line. Lesions of CSVV may or may not be itchy or painful, and they will typically resolve over the course of several weeks. Patients usually don't have impressive systemic symptoms like fevers or arthralgias, but they may, and biopsy will show leukocytoclastic vasculitis. Okay, for 15 points, what does leukocytoclastic vasculitis look like under the microscope? Audience, no helping. Because nobody cares what you think anyways. Hey Jerry, you suck! I got a vascular lesion for you. It's called hemorrhoids. Want to come over and take a look at it? Absolutely not. You can make an appointment with your primary care provider. 
For leukocytoclastic vasculitis, you will see 1. Vessels in the superficial dermis with fibrin deposition and expansion of the vessel walls, 2. Red blood cell extravasation, and 3. A perivascular infiltrate containing neutrophils and cariorexis. This cariorexis is nuclear debris that looks like a bunch of chopped up purple ants. Again, leukocytoclastic vasculitis appears under the scope with 1. Superficial vessels showing fibrin deposition and expansion of their walls, 2. RBC extravasation, and 3. A perivascular infiltrate containing neutrophils and cariorexis. If these changes are affecting deeper and larger vessels, this is a red flag for a more systemic vasculitis. Alright, we're on to round number 2. Here are your buzzwords child, arthralgia, purpura, melana, hematuria. 10 seconds. And that would be Henoch-Shanlin purpura. HSP is an IgA vasculitis, which is the most common form of vasculitis in children. Kids classically start with an upper respiratory infection or strep infection, and then one to two weeks later develop the tetrad of 1. Palpable purpura on the legs and butt, 2. Arthralgias of the knees and ankles, 3. GI issues including abdominal pain and diarrhea with or without melana, and then number four, renal changes with hematuria, possible nephritis, and rarely renal failure in around 1% of cases. In med school, I used to remember this tetrad with a stupid reverse Macarena dance move by tapping my knees, thighs, belly, and flanks to remember arthralgias of the knees, rash on the thighs, belly for GI issues, and flanks for kidney issues. If it helps, great. If it doesn't, don't judge. And keep in mind that HSP can affect adults as well, who usually have a more aggressive and chronic HSP course, which is associated with solid organ and blood cancers as well. Alright, here's a toughie worth 20 points. What three findings suggest that an adult with HSP is going to have kidney involvement with an IgA glomerulonephritis? 10 seconds. For adults with HSP, you worry about renal involvement when they have 1. Fevers, 2. An increased sed rate, and 3. Purpura located above the waist. I remember that these purpura are getting close to the kidneys, so they're more likely to be involved. And as far as HSP diagnosis, biopsy will show leukocytoclastic vasculitis and a positive DIF with IgA deposition in the blood vessel walls. For this reason, many dermatologists recommend doing DIF studies on rashes that are worrisome for vasculitis, since diagnosis of HSP with a DIF will help us know whether we need to monitor for renal disease in these patients as time goes by. Treatment of HSP is usually supportive with or without prednisone or dapsone, and patients should be monitored with serial urinalyses and a stool guaiac if they have GI symptoms. All right, all right. Before we introduce our next small vessel vasculitis, we'll take a quick commercial break. Have you been to multiple doctors in the last year? Have they not been aggressive enough in treating your dermatologic ailment? Are you suffering from multiple rashes such as atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, lupus, or toxic epidermal necrolysis? We understand, and we are here to get aggressive. 
Agrochizumab is a monoclonal antibody targeting interleukin 1, 2, 4, 6, 8, 12, 13, 17, 18, 22, 23, TNF-alpha, TNF-beta, JAK1, 2, 3, TIC2, interferon alpha, gamma, and granulocyte monocyte colony stimulating factor. Side effects include, but are certainly not limited to, nausea, diarrhea, constipation, sore throat, sore eyes, cough, hair loss, hair gain, depression, mania, complete obliteration of the corpus callosum, explosive hematuria, periorbital edema, perineal hyperhidrosis, necrotizing fasciitis, every possible subtype of lymphoma and leukemia, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, death and joining the undead. Additionally, a minor subset of patients experience the onset of a rare syndrome characterized by keratoderma blenerogicum, onychogryphosis, and linear balanitis, also known as Kolb syndrome. But do not worry, this is the first and only medication in history to be FDA-approved to treat its own side effects. We are Aggressi, Agrokizumab, when aggression is the only way. Welcome back. So here are your buzzwords. Hives, pain, purpura, low complement level. And I'm not talking about a day in clinic with Dr. Grumpy Pants, okay? <laughs> this would be urticarial vasculitis. Simply put, urticarial vasculitis shows urticaria clinically, but an LCV on histopathology. We touched briefly on urticarial vasculitis in the urticaria podcast. Urticarial vasculitis is unique from regular urticaria in that 1. Lesions of urticarial vasculitis last longer than 24 hours compared to less than 24 hours for regular urticaria. 2. Urticarial vasculitis lesions usually have more pain and burning than they do itch as in regular urticaria. And 3 and 4. Urticarial vasculitis may have purpura along with systemic symptoms. I don't want to dive too far into the weeds, but just know that urticarial vasculitis is further broken down into normal complementemic and hypocomplementemic variants. Around three quarters of urticarial vasculitis cases have normal complement levels and are skin limited, while a quarter of urticarial vasculitis cases are hypocomplementemic. These hypocomplementemic cases of urticarial vasculitis are associated with systemic changes such as arthralgias, pulmonary, GI, renal, and ocular changes, along with decreased CH50, C3, and C4 levels and anti-C1Q antibodies. Whoa, easy Sparky. You're not scoring any brownie points with me. Just answer the questions. So, for one points, you have a patient with urticarial vasculitis and IgM gammopathy, fevers, and bone pain. What condition do they have? This would be Schnittler syndrome, which again has an urticarial vasculitis, IgM gammopathy, and fevers, bone pain, and arthralgias. Yep, you gotta know your gammopathies in dermatology, that's faux show. Alright, next question. For 55 points, here is your one phrase buzz phrase. Cold-induced purpura.
We're going to kick off our small and medium vessel vasculitides by talking cryoglobulinemias. Cryoglobulins are immunoglobulins that precipitate in the cold, and they are broken down into three types based on the immunoglobulins present. Type 1 cryoglobulinemia is caused by monoclonal IgM more so than monoclonal IgG, and it is associated with lymphoproliferative disorders. This monoclonal IgM leads to sludging and occlusion of blood vessels and is thus a vasculopathy and not vasculitis. These type 1 cryoglobulinemia cases present with levito reticularis, Raynaud's phenomenon, acrocyanosis, and purpura. And since type 1 cryoglobulinemias are an occlusive vasculopathy, there is no LCV on path because it is just one type of antibody and no antibody antigen complexes. If you didn't get all that, no worries, we'll sum it up in a minute after we discuss types 2 and 3 cryoglobulinemias, which are considered to have vasculitis because you have two types of antibodies. So they complex as the antibody-antigen complex, activate the immune system, and cause vasculitis. Remember, Bill, I'm Jerry Titus Vasculitis. Let's keep this type 1 cryoglobulinemia vasculopathy bullcrap off my set. We're recording. Oh, <clears throat> okay, for 20 points, tell me about type 2 and 3 cryoglobulinemias. Type 2 cryoglobulinemias exhibit monoclonal IgM or IgG with polyclonal IgG, while type 3 has polyclonal IgM and polyclonal IgG. Again, type 2 cryoglobulinemias exhibit monoclonal IgM or IgG directed against polyclonal IgG, while type 3 is polypoly with polyclonal IgM and polyclonal IgG. Because of this mix of IgM and IgG, types 2 and 3 are called the mixed cryoglobulinemias. They result in immune complexes that activate complement and cause leukocytoclastic vasculitis. They also have a higher association with hepatitis C. Alright, so what are some lab abnormalities you'd expect from these mixed cryoglobulinemias? For the mixed type 2 and 3 cryoglobulinemias, you would expect elevated cryoglobulins, decreased C4 complement levels due to consumption, a positive rheumatoid factor, and possibly a positive hepatitis B or C test. Again, for the mixed type 2 and 3 cryoglobulinemias, you would expect elevated cryoglobulins, decreased C4 complement levels due to consumption, a positive rheumatoid factor, and possibly a positive Hep B or C test. Accurate detection of cryoglobulins is not easy since the sample must be maintained near 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit until it is spun down, otherwise you get a false negative result. Check to make sure your lab has a warm water bath or another protocol in place to accurately check these, otherwise you're wasting your time and the patient's money. However, it's always good to remember that a rheumatoid factor is an easier test that is positive in 70 to 90% of cases of cryoglobulinemias. So here's a nice pearl to help you remember this. Rheumatoid factor, by definition, is the presence of an antibody that is binding to the FC portion of IgG. 
Remember that the FC portion is the bottom of the antibody's Y shape. So again, rheumatoid factor by definition is the presence of an antibody that is binding to the FC portion of another IgG. Since types 2 and 3 mixed cryoglobulinemias have polyclonal IgG, it makes sense that you end up with antibodies binding to IgG and thus a positive rheumatoid factor. Alright, so that's where I'm going to cut myself off and get to the summary. In the next episode, we'll finish small and medium vessel vasculitides with the ANCA vasculitides, and then touch on the medium and large vessel vasculitides. Before we sum up today's episode, let's throw in a quick little music break so we can recharge and finish strong. Vasculitis means inflammation of the blood vessel walls and we categorize them based on vessel size. These small vessel vasculitides often present with petechia and palpable purpura and include the prototype cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, which is commonly referred to as leukocytoclastic vasculitis or LCV. Then we have Henoch-Shanlin purpura and urticarial vasculitis. For CSVV cases, remember it is caused by immune complex deposition caused by a variety of triggers that we remember with our acronym MANIC, with M for medications, A for autoimmune conditions like lupus, RA, or Sjogren's syndrome, N for NSAIDs, I for a variety of infections or inflammatory bowel disease, and C for cancer. Also remember that medications and infections are typically introduced one to two weeks prior to the vasculitic rash, whereas underlying conditions like autoimmune diseases or cancers typically start six months prior to lesions. These CSVV patients may have mild systemic symptoms and their biopsy will display leukocytoclastic vasculitis, which shows superficial vessels with fibrin deposition and expansion of their walls, RBC extravasation, and a perivascular infiltrate containing neutrophils and cariorexis. Next, we touched on the IgA vasculitis, Henoch-Shanling purpura. Remember the tetrad of arthralgias, palpable purpura, GI issues like abdominal pain and diarrhea, and renal changes. Treatment of HSP is usually supportive with or without prednisone or dapsone. Next, there's urticarial vasculitis, which shows urticaria clinically and LCV on path. The urticaria of urticarial vasculitis are unique in that lesions last longer than 24 hours, are more painful than they are pruritic, and are associated with purpura and systemic symptoms. Normocomplementemic forms are usually skin-limited, while hypocomplementemic forms of urticarial vasculitis have more systemic issues. Then we started our discussion of the small and medium vessel vasculitides with cryoglobulinemias. Remember that when medium-sized vessels get involved, you start to move beyond petechia and palpable purpura and start seeing levito reticularis, subcutaneous nodules, and even retiform purpura clinically. For the cryoglobulinemias, type 1 is most often caused by monoclonal IgM, is associated with lymphoproliferative disorders, and results in vessel occlusion and is thus a vasculopathy with no LCV seen on histology. Types 2 and 3 cryoglobulinemias have polyclonal IgG, resulting in immune complexes and the typical findings of LCV on path and clinically with palpable purpura and systemic changes. And that's what we've got for you today. I know that's some dense, complicated content, but like I said in the intro, it's super important that we know these conditions well so that we can help to make an early diagnosis and prevent any morbidity and mortality for our patients. 
In the next episode, we'll finish up the rest of the vasculitis disorders before moving on to the vasculopathies. So thanks again for listening. I'm Logan Cold, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.